Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Mark Wheeler about one of the best films from the 1970s, William Friedkin's Sorcerer, a remake of Wages of Fear, which in some ways uh, outdoes its original classic, though that original is. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to use social media to spread the word, leave a review, like, and do all those things that make it possible for us to reach a wider audience. And before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I remember the first time I saw Sorcerer, was mm-hmm. was very late, very, very late. It was like four or five years ago, and it was at the Venice Film Festival, and William Friedkin was receiving like a Lifetime Achievement Award, and he introduced the film. Friedkin being Friedkin, they, ki- they kind of had to say at some point, you know, we, we really need to get the film. Shut up. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. he was one of the funniest, most entertaining sort of guys... Uh, and most loquacious 
uh, he was amazing. Um, what was your first experience with the film? Well, I, I was trying to work this one out, and I, interesting enough, I think I saw the bizarre international cut of it once on television when I was about 12. It came out quite shortly after, the because the film was obviously a financial disaster. And um, I assume they must have sold it to British television in that cut. Because I remember my dad watching it with me, and he was a big fan of, obviously, the original Cluzo film, and The Wages of Fear. And um, he just was tut-tutting at everything. Uh, because we'd seen The French Connection, and it was just like, how did this guy go from that to this you know and um it i have obviously you know the, it has the you know the rope sequence the rope bridge sequence and several of the action sequences but they completely butchered it and removed all the uh, original kind of 40 minutes of it which is all the backstories which get into obviously the poor veneer you know the world's worst village um and i think there was an occasional bit of shider's you know the roy shider bank the church robbery scene was cut into and maybe a bit of the the french fraudster but i don't i think pretty much everything else had gone basically um and then it was one of these kind of weird lost films for years and um Obviously, there'd always been the French connection and the Exorcist, and he'd obviously also made to live and die in LA. Uh, and then he'd had a, I mean, he'd had a tumultuous career to put it mildly, even before and after Sorcerer. But um, and then it came, it came out on DVD, I think, about fifteen years ago, and not a very good copy. Uh, but I managed to get hold of a copy internationally because I, at that point, had an international DVD broadcasting kit. And I watched it, and it was like, blimey, this is actually a really good film. And it actually stands up compared to The Wages of Fear, which is obviously an excellent film as well. Um, and how did this kind of situation occur, that this film had ended up in such kind of a disaster? Because it was all at the same time, I think, when the Peter Biskin book of Easy Riders, Raging Bulls came out, and it had quite a substantive amount of material on Freakin, and obviously the disaster that befell the production and then the outcome of, of the Sorceress being, you know, the film that was blown away by Star Wars, essentially. So that's kind of my background to it. And then I tried uh, for several years to actually put forward a kind of BFI monograph idea, which there was no bit on. Um, and then I, bizarre enough, just out of that proposal of nothing, a publishing company, an American company, was asking for a proposal. So I thought, well, why not stick it in? And, and they, they bit on it. So there you go, you know. So. Brilliant, brilliant. Well done. Uh, and I mean, it's it's a book that deserves, sorry, it's a film that deserves um, uh, a lot of attention. Your book obviously deserves a lot of attention as well. So, <laughs> um, but um uh, yeah, I mean, my my, I've definitely had read about it in the Biskin book. This is Peter Biskin's Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Um, I I honestly think there's a book to be written. I have no animus against Peter Biskin, but I think that there is a counter book to be written uh, because I think his book is very uh, dodgy in terms of sort of uh, the the he never lets a good story go verified. Uh, what is that? It's a, it's a gossipy book, obviously. There's obviously a lot about the loves and lives of these auteur directors, including Freakin and Coppola, particularly. Um, and they were very critical of it, obviously, that Freakin said it was written, you know, he only interviewed ex-girlfriends who had it in for him, basically. And um, 
there's also I think Paul Schrader also there's a there was a documentary that was produced off the back of that film a book and um, they had kind of extended interviews and Schrader basically said that. Biskin had a thesis that he just was relentlessly going to pursue, that everybody was great in the first part of the 70s, and they, they kind of went berserk, took loads of drugs, which is not untrue in some of it, obviously. And their films that sort of morphed into these elephant-tie-like productions, and basically they lost control of it. That, and, you know, they, we blew it, you know, in the words of Easy Rider, was kind of his position. Um, and Schrader said, well, look, I'm making what I consider to be more interesting films now than I was making in the 1970s. Your thesis doesn't work. But he had a thesis which it became kind of the general truism of, of that whole idea that you know, there was this golden period. And it was a, you know, I think it was a golden period because there was lots of great films being made. And it was obviously interesting times in terms of the commercial direction of Hollywood at that time as well. Um and you had opportunities in the system which previously hadn't occurred, and obviously people were a new gen, the new Hollywood arrived. But I do agree with you in terms of the notion that um, the Biskin book can have an equally a counter narrative to it as well. It's, I think it's Biskin's best book because I've read some of his other stuff, which is very choppy, basically. And the one he did about all the Tarantino generation, I thought, was just very, very poor as well because he didn't really have an angle on that. At least he had an angle on the Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, you know. Yeah, the, the, and and weirdly a, a huge missed opportunity because the the one on the Tarantino thing is is very much the story of Harvey Weinstein, and 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 it's a, it's kind of almost celebrating their behaviour. It's like oh look how look at the bad boys go, you know, and you know obviously there's no stuff about the but you're you are sort of thinking you're digging around like as a journalist and you didn't get that story i mean uh well i mean i think there was a, a nomata around harvey weinstein i'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole but how various directors including tarantino himself didn't know what weinstein was up to always seems beyond me but you know again i know hollywood always works on the bottom line which you know freaking said the notion is that a success has a thousand fathers a failure has none and when weinstein was making money for hollywood um, it worked in that respect that I think lots of people owed him lots of situations. Once he started losing money and started losing his power base, then it's interesting how quickly it all fell apart, really, to me. But uh, um, and I know that's a very kind of economic determinist position, but I mean, I don't know Me Too came out in the whole process, but there was also a situation that that's the kind of unsaid, unsaid narrative also I had with Weinstein as well. His films simply stopped making money, you know. And start making, and you know, this is. I mean, this is always, you know, it's a, it's always that question between art and commerce, isn't it, in Hollywood as well. So, um, and if you can get the balance right, like Freakin did, certainly with the French Connection, and even more with The Exorcist, um, you are therefore in a position of apparent invulnerability. But then, of course, it all crashed and burned around Sorcerer. So, um, and he never quite had the. He never quite was able to get back to that ascendancy he once had, you know, after Sorcerer. So that was the other interesting thing to me, but how his career had this, you know, spectacular kind of rise in the early 70s. He wins the Best Director Oscar. Obviously, it's the great success of The Exorcist in terms of its financial clout. And then this film comes about and it seems to, you know, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any kind of real explanation of his, of his financial collapse, basically. And um, obviously, I think he'd obviously 
done the classic thing of biting the hand that had fed him as well. Because when I looked into the kind of production history, neither studio really wanted to make Sorcerer. That was the other factor. And he had this thing of getting two studios involved, you know, so... Well, yes, that, that sort of turns into a problem for him because they can sort of shift the blame from one to the other without any either of them sort of wanting to be left holding the holding the sort of the, the, the bucket of shame. Yeah, well, I mean, it also it was bizarre. It was, I was reading again because there was this odd kind of distribution company that Paramount and Universal had international, certainly in Europe, called CIC, which is a cinema international corporation. And actually the film, because Preakin eventually had to find out who owned the film about 10, 15 years ago now, he had to go into a court case because they, they, he couldn't be shown. Suddenly it was out of circulation. And he found out it was owned by this, this shell company that Paramount and Universal you had used in the 70s and 80s, their major distribution company in Europe. So, again, this was the – so, again, that whole question about nobody wanting to take blame, you're right, is another factor in this situation, you know. Mm-hmm. And his main kind of advocate in this situation, Charles de Bluthorn, had also died subsequently as well. And uh, people like Lou Wasserman, Sid Scheinberg and Barry Diller and Ned Tannen really didn't want that film. You know, they, 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 they some, it, it, it's interesting because he actually negotiated independently this great financial deal for himself after the French connection with Jules Stein, who was the, chairman of MCA, the you know, the old guy who ran it initially. So both Wasserman and I think Scheinberg's noses were significantly put out a joint that this upstart director had managed to circumvent them basically as well. Let's do let's let's go because we've started a little bit um back 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 to front. <laughs> let's uh... Talking about the, we're talking about the sort of the reception of the film, and the, but but that's how we've received it so far. There's been this butchered version that you saw. I actually saw the best version in us in a sense, but that was a version that was unavailable for many years. But let's go back to the beginning of Friedkin and his career. He's uh, he's not coming out of film school like Lucas and uh, Coppola. He's he's not coming out of Corman like Scorsese, um, Jonathan Demi. Well, and Copper and Bogdanovich as well. So you know, who... he's he's really going from directly from school, you know, as you say in your book, to the sort of, to the mailroom of a TV studio, and then kind of making a career for himself. For himself, it's a kind of an alternative route. It's an interesting route because, firstly, he obviously gets into this work for this television station out of Chicago. First off, he's from Chicago. And uh, as you say, he worked through the mailroom. He then manages to, by the age of his early 20s, he's done thousands of hours of direction of television programs, all types of television programs, from what I can tell. I mean, obviously dramas as well. Um, and he is very influenced by, I suppose, there was that TV generation of filmmakers like Sidney Lumet, particularly John Frankenheimer who I think became a quite a hero to Friedkin and a mentor in some respects. And um, and there's a kind of baton that's passed, actually, if you look at it, between Frankenheimer to Friedkin, then Friedkin to Spielberg, actually, who all come out of a TV route. And then, obviously, he becomes very much best known as a documentarian. He makes this very famous documentary on for Chicago TV about the people versus Paul Crump which obviously is this guy's on death row that he 
I mean, Coppola has said, you know, that it was one of the great films of all time because it actually got someone, uh, got someone who'd been convicted actually off, basically, as well. And on the basis of that, he becomes, his, docu- his, his documentarian side takes him into Hollywood, basically. He goes to work for a character called David Wolper. And Wolper makes lots of documentaries for television. And at Wolper, he meets Waylon Green, who will be the screenwriter, and also Bud Smith, who becomes one of his kind of major collaborators, his, his main editor and second unit director and kind of associate producer. Um, and apropos out of that also, then he, he he gets the attention of, I can't remember the name of the guy, he was Hitchcock's television producer. And he makes the last ever Hitchcock um, TV series programme. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Alfred Hitchcock Presents, yeah, yeah. And this is, you know, again, you may have heard the tale that he famously was making the film and uh, making the TV program, Hitchcock shows up, and he says Hitchcock then put out his hand like a sort of dead sort of duck or something, and expecting him, I don't know, like to kiss it or something, I don't like a pope or something, and he shakes it, and then Hitchcock, he thinks that Hitchcock's going to have this great, Insight and says, then Hitchcock says to him, Our directors normally wear ties, Mr. Friedkin, and then just walks off. So, and then Friedkin supposedly had his revenge when he was getting all the awards for French Connection when he showed up with a snapped bow tie and went up to Hitchcock and said, Look, do you remember this hitch? And did this through this bow tie as well. So, so he, so he comes out of that, yeah, that, and it's, it's, and it's, it's an interesting gener, it's a sort of generationally. You know, part of the you know the kind of TV directors, but he's also pre the movie brats, as it were. I mean, Coppola, I suppose, and Bogdanovich are his main contemporaries. If you look at it, God, just in terms of where they all actually stand in terms of their age and things like that as well. Yeah, Arthur Penn is a little bit behind him in Frankenheim as as well. Well, Arthur Penn was another. Well, Arthur Penn was a TV director who'd made the left-handed gun before. He, I mean, in the late fifties, and also he was also a very famous sort of New York Broadway director as well. But before he'd done Bonnie and Clyde, yeah. So, but I mean, there, there was, I suppose there's Lumet, Frankenheim, Penn, and also there was Franklin J. Schaffner. And Robert Mulligan, who were the, they were considered to be the kind of the figures who came out of that New York TV drama kind of process who'd made the original 12 angry men and all that kind of thing as well on tv before it went to tell it went to film and things like that yeah frequently frequently live so they learned blocking on the hoof you know well i think well this happened with freaking as well where he learned a lot off the hoof making it for live chicago television from what i can tell so uh so he goes to the movies it takes him a while to to crack it though, I mean, he he has sort of a fair number of um, of credits to his name. Films like The Birthday Party, which I uh, there's a lot to admire, but I mean, Pinter being Pinter, it, it's not necessarily a film you would love. Uh, well, his first four films are financially negligible, it has to be said. I mean, but but he did learn a he learned to like he made the original films with Gun Sunny and Share Good Times. Um, and then he moved on, which he basically said he just made on the hoof, basically as well. He made a, he made a film called I've Never Seen the Name, something the night they raided Minsky's, which was right. um, Jason Robards. Jason Robards and Norman Wisdom, I think, was in it as well. Uh, and Britt Edwards. It's got a kind of eclectic cast, and um, that was more of a kind of Norman Lear production. 
that freaking kind of was the director on, but was not really in control of his. And he said he was too young to make such a big production because it was quite, so it was obviously a kind of historical production. Then he makes the birthday party, which is an interesting sojourn. He's actually making that in Worthing and uh, with Robert Shaw and people like that, you know. And uh, and then he ultimately makes The Boys in the Band, which is a kind of the first sort of Hollywood film about homosexuality. Uh, which, of course, was something later on in his career would also emerge, of course, with the, you know, the Al Pacino film, you know, Cruising as well. Um, and so he, 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 up to, as you say, I suppose you can, it's a bit like Coppola in that respect, because Coppola, if you look at, again, his early films, up to really, I suppose, the rain people, he's making... He comes out of Roger Corman, as we know. He makes the "You're a Big Boy Now," which is his kind of thesis film for, and he also um, he makes the bizarre Finian's Rainbow, which he meets George Lucas on as well, um, and they're kind of trying to make a voice themselves. I think him and Copper and whatever, and it takes the, for both of them to the, really their fifth film in terms of being directors to actually to actually find something distinctive and. What Freakin realizes, um, A, that he needs to make something that's more business than show, as it were, and less artity and esoteric. Otherwise, he's just going to be marginalized. And supposedly, he was going out with um, Howard Hawks' daughter at the time. And Howard Hawks said, You need to make a film that has a chase in it. So, um, and. The fact was, he he also realised from watching the film Z or Z, however it's pronounced, the Costa Gavras film, that he could actually fuse together a kind of action narrative with a documentarian style. And this is that this is, seems to be where the, the penny drops for freaking in terms of a cinematic style. I would say. Just using that docu documentary immediacy that he's learned in Chicago and putting it into a Hollywood genre. Yeah, well, the, the, he, he redefines the whole kind of cop procedure film with the French Connection. And supposedly threw out the book. And he, again, again, the Pinter thing helps him as well because he likes the dialogue that Popeye Doyle, or, uh, or what's his, the real name, I can't remember, the, uh, anyway... When he meets Grosso and the the guy, the, the real Popeye Doyle, they have this kind of bizarre pick, me, pick your feet in Poughkeepsie thing, which he has a kind of Pinterest kind of quality to it. You know, certainly the opening sequence where they're beating up the black guy and they're kind of having this weird interrogation thing to completely put the guy off beam and whatever has a kind of Pinterest kind of quality to it. And um, also, he, he, he develops a kind of style which also has a very kinetic kind of narrative editorial pace to it as well, which of course is most explicitly shown in the very famous car chase where Popeye Doyle is chasing, you know, the, the elevated train. Um, but it's also shown in the kind of cat and mouse stuff that's going on between Gene Hackman's character and the Fernando Ray, you know, the villain Alan Charnier, when they're going around the New York streets and things like that. And, you know, and when he, he loses him on the, the, the underground as well, on the subway, you know. So, you know, I, I, again, these, I mean, also, what I think also freaking learns is, that, is to cut to the bone as well, because... Again, if you look at the DVD, there's a number of extra sequences that really don't end anything narratively. Might have been more character-based, because I think Hackman got a bit peeved about that, although he won the best Oscar for actor in it. Um, and But freaking, you know, he said, no, we've got to be relentless in this. You can't muck around or whatever. So that kind of gave him that, you know, that's that, that incredible 
pace to his films as well. Yeah, uh, the um, that thing that you said in terms of your book, it reminds me, uh, uh, you know, that idea of the 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 interest that he has in people doing things, like how the mecha- the mechanics of action. How does this work? How how do a group of people? So it's sort of uh, you know, character is action. Of, as I think you quote Ed Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, and you see that in The Exorcist as well, uh, uh, in terms of the the most interesting thing is when they're trying to diagnose the the the, the child, and then the the actual minutiae of what does an exorcist look like? What do you do? What do you wear? What is the order of things? You know, I'm always a little, I'm always a little disapp- I'm always a little disappointed. The exorcist, the actual exorcist in The Exorcist, isn't a bit longer because I, I I always feel that that. It's a bit too short for me in the uh, in the film. Um, well, I, I know it's considered to be and Mark Kermode's favourite film and everything like that. I mean, for me, I always thought The Exorcist is a very well-made film. I have seen I've seen it once with an audience years ago on Halloween, and it did shock people. But it's never uh, it, to me. It, it was as much as William Peter Blatty's thing as it was freaking. So I mean, it's brilliantly made by freaking. I'm not going to deny that. But and, and there are some, you know, alteral themes, but you've also got to think about it comes from Blatty's book as well. And um, the other factor is that uh, I think, that, as you say, this kind of thing, what, freak, what freaking is most interested in is, you know, that whole stuff where they're trying to diagnose her. And they put the there's the sequence he said that most people took grave offence to was that that sequence where she has to have the medical examination, and she has the stuff poured into her body and things like that as well. And again, if you think of the French Connection, there's a whole bit where they completely demolished the car to try and find the um, the heroin. Now that supposedly was based on a true story. And the guy who was the mechanic was the true mechanic. In, in from from it all struck me as a bit bizarre that they, you thought the first place they would look at how it would be the rocker panels, you know, because mm-hmm. you know it's a bit, you go well surely you'd have looked at that bit first before distributing the whole taking the whole engine apart and taking the oil away and whatever that, that you know it seemed fairly obvious that it would stick them just by the the door panel basically but anyway that's but yeah go ahead yeah. But it's it's um, parodied in one of the Naked Guns, or it might be Police Squad, where they take apart an entire car and then they find it in the glove compartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, um, but of course, also the French Connection. In these bits of the wire, if you watch the wire, that you can pick up on again. I mean, the whole procedural thing, and it's even a sequence where. Um, you know, Popeye Doyle is eating his horrible pizza outside in the freezing cold, and the French guys are having this wondrous course of free course meal and whatever. And it's a fancy restaurant in London, mid- Midtown. And as I think there's a kind of parallel sequence between Jimmy McNulty and Iris Elba's character, where again, he's, he, he's, he, he's like eating all this crap and whatever. And, you know, the, the Iris Elba character, I don't String of Bell actually eats in some sort of she, she wrestled, but there's some sort of parallel to it, I remember thinking, blimey, that's straight, straight out of the French connection, really. So, yeah. Um, and The Exorcist, of course, is the film, as he said, he will always be remembered for. Because um, it was, you know, even to this day, it's one of the all-time box office record films in the history of Hollywood, if you take it proportionally, you know, in terms of you know, inflation and things like that as well. And, of course, also had the thing in this country, bizarrely being banned as well by the BBFC for a, a long time. Uh, when it was all part of the video nasties thing as well, 
so bizarre if the only exorcist you could get was exorcist to the heretic you know the, the john borman disastrous sequel you know a far superior movie in my no i like borman's films um I think there's some very interesting visual things in it. Um, anything, just, with, uh, think, anything with Richard Burton in is going to get a, an immediate plus for me. Well, but I look like Richard Burton was just reaching for his, you know, bottle of Corvassier or vodka or God knows what he was on by that point. It was like watching Richard Burton where he goes down. He's been to all these amazing stunts and he's like, you know, he's, he's basically got the shakes for the whole film as far well as I can see. And, you know, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, so, and obviously, I mean, again, you know, I think Mark Commode was like a one-man industry and kind of reviving the whole thing about The Exorcist as well, you know, and has carried on ever since. It's certainly not my favourite film of all time, anyhow. But no, uh, again, I rewatched that. They they re they released a a uh, I'd never seen it on the big screen, so I saw it again in uh, Venice this this year, and I came out thinking it's a really good four star film. It's not for me. It's yeah, just- absolutely, it's an excellent film, but not a masterpiece. You know, I would say. You know, well, I would say the French Connection and Saucer are masterpieces. I mean, I think Freakin' made three masterpieces, which I'd also include to live and die in LA, which I saw actually with Freakin' talking about with Wang Chung on the stage and Mark Commode um, about four or five years ago. And again, it's that difference of seeing a film is a cinematic thing, you know. Um, but um, uh, The Exorcist, obviously... Uh, Always insulated, I suppose, freaking. He, 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 his films after that just did not make very much money, you know. Uh, but he was always able, I suppose they were always able to say, the director of The Exorcist or whatever, you know, and that kind of thing. Because he made a really rubbish horror film called The Guardian, I think, which is about a tree like, trying to take a child away and things like that, you know, which I've never seen. I don't know, it was, it was, uh, but, uh, and he, he did have a quite a bad run in the late 80s, early 90s as well, you know. Despite marrying the studio head, well, that was always the, he made a film called Jade at Joe Esterhouse uh, wrote, and that, that was Joe Esterhouse's kind of thing that he was Mister Sherry Lansing, and that's the only reason he got the job. Um, I mean, I'm not a great Joe Esterhouse fan, so it's not you know again, it's the best thing that he was involved in was Basic Instinct, and I think we'd say no more really, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I tell you. That- I tell you the truth, I think most of Joe Esterhaz's movies, you could go with uh, Jagged Edge with Jeff Jeff Bridges. And then and then the template that he uses is almost reproduced in all his films. It's just, Apart it does, from Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which 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 is its own Paul Verhoeven uh nuttiness. So let's go to the to the to the second ma- the second masterpiece. First of all, that title is awful oh it's appalling yeah i mean well the, the thing was uh, they, they originally wanted supposedly i mean whether this is true he originally wanted to call it ball breaker now i can't imagine any holly particularly one hollywood show and two backing a film that, that cost 22 million dollars at the time which is an enormous sum at that time in the 70s and wanting to distribute uh, you know a film called ball breaker um then he comes, obviously, there was some discussion with it. I think it should be called The Wages of Fear again, which, of course, would have been directly on the notion, because he was always on the notion that he hadn't remade the film. This was a, re, a, a kind of new take upon the same almost high concept. You know, it's a great concept, isn't it? You're driving nitroglycerin across a jungle to 
put out a fire and you can be blown up at any time yourself. And um, he then, um, a sorcerer, he says, you know, it was this notion that he that he'd done with faith in the exorcism now, it was a, the, the sorcerer is the evil wizard of, of fate. Um, and also then there was some argument he proclaimed that he got it from also Miles Davis' track as well. But it certainly did not help the film in any shape or form in terms of its first run. Because, it, you know, the whole idea was his freaking made the exorcist. What is this to an audience who are expecting an exorcist to themselves, you know, especially when it's called Sorcerer, so. I mean, the, the, the thing about The Wages of Fear is that we tend to look at The Wages of Fear now. It's a 1950s, 1953. It's, it's a black and white movie. It's in French. And so it's this sort of nailed-on classic. But when... Friedkin is making Sorcerer in 1977. It's only like 20 years afterwards. I mean, it's like somebody remaking The Matrix. I mean, it's not like... Um, well, it, it seems... Well, I think you've got to bear in mind because the reality now is you can download, you can stream everything, you can see everything continuously. So in our mind's eye, The Matrix, even though it is, you know, 25 years ago, essentially, um, is every, in, in people's consciousness in a way that popular music is in people's consciousness. What happened, I mean, after The Wages of Fear would have been shown in the 50s, it would have been, that would have been it. Maybe it would have appeared on, I don't know, French television, I don't know. I'm not sure how the French movie system worked. But, and maybe it would have been shown at some revival houses. But, of course, once these films went out of circulation, and even big films, once they went out of circulation, maybe every so often they'd be revived. Like, you know, Disney used to do that, didn't they? And, Bond films used to be shown. I remember seeing like a James Bond double bill of, you know, from Russia with love and and the other the later one that Connery made the last one the the one uh, set in Las Vegas. Diamonds are forever. forever. Yeah, and, yeah, and um, but so these films may have only been like twenty or twenty five years earlier, but they kind of gone out of the kind of public and critical consciousness as well. And there was a kind of critical lexicon idea that how dare freaking remake this classic and particularly it's a French classic is that you know um why you know as this upstart director think he's got the right to do this this is the I mean in Andrew Saris's review um this seemed to be the, the basic tenor of the review and also freaking hadn't helped himself because he'd slagged off a lot of his critics as well because when he was in his period of omnipotence even though the exist you know, it was it had a, a mixed critical reception? Let's put it that way. So, but he could say, "Well, I've made the most financially successful film up till Jaws." So, sodgy, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so, there was a lot of antipathy, and it was also seemed to be a thing which also Spielberg suffered from. After you know, you make two hits, two massive hits, and they're all out for you for the third film. And that happened to Spielberg as well with 1941, admittedly. Gigantian, you know, situation as well. Um, so there seemed to be something that, that and of course, those, those film critics at like Pauline Kale, Andrew Saris, at that time, they could make or break a film. So, and I think there was hubris as well from Freakin, you know, let's not kid ourselves. His behavior when making Sorcerer was quite extraordinary as well. And there was sackings and firings of the line producer, David Salvin. Then there was a guy who was a CIC representative, Ian Lewis. So in the end, he gets the production credit as well as the directorial credit, um, where he didn't really produce Sorcerer. I mean, um, and also he was hiring and fighting. I mean, he hired and fought. He got rid of his his cameraman as well, Dick Bush, who, and he brought in his second unit guy, John Stevens, 
Um, he certainly had also, I mean, he'd also, he probably did the ultimate crime. He'd upset the Teamsters as well. So, which is something you just don't do on big productions, particularly when you're, you know, and this film, it started off at 2.5 billion. It's meant to be a small side production and it escalates because, again, it's like Apocalypse now in, and, and Aguero, Ruff are good. When the directorial decision is taken to go and make these films in the middle of the jungle, you've then got all the pr- inherent problems of making a film in the middle of nowhere, getting film equipment over to the middle of nowhere, and also, obviously, the most famous sequence of Sorcerer is the famous rope bridge sequence, which took, you know, about three months to shoot and it kept an escalator. They kept on finding rivers that were running out of water. Um, and so again, and you know, again, also there was some notion, this was a director of the exodus and the local village then started going up in arms as well. So I had a kind of almost that kind of, if you've seen Burden of Dreams and, you know, Fitz Caraldo film and also Marcus. Um, and it would have been interesting if they had actually really had made a, documentary of the making of Sorcerer at the time, but I think they were too busy doing actually making the film in the end. So, you know. Absolutely. So, I mean, the the film as it stands and as we've, as it stands now, as it exists in the DVD version that you can get now or the Blu-ray, has these, first of all, these uh, these stories, these prologues almost, which which is essentially aren't that generically, aren't that uh, experimental. They're kind of like putting the putting the team together, you know, but without anybody organizing it. It's just how do all these different people get there? And so you've got like a Palestinian terrorist, you've got a French um, fraudster, and you've got an American sort of... He's a getaway driver. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've also got the hitman as well, the um, Francisco Rabal character as well, Nilo. Who I think they only, I think they only add though it's the first sequence that appears in the film. I think that was only added late. I looked at some earlier scripts and that there was no discussion of that between Freakin and Green. Because uh, again, we have to give Waylon Green his credit as well because the whole idea was also to structure us in a slightly different way. But again, if you look at you know getting the French Connection and also um, Exorcist, you have these prologue sequences in both those films. You have the French cop being killed by the frog too. You have also um, Max von Sydow going out to the middle of Iran um, and finding that you know, Pazuzu, although it wasn't called Pazuzu in that film. Uh, and for other, actually, in some respects, that's the best sequence in the film of the exercise, I think, the opening, five and ten minutes of it, you know. Because uh, that has a general sense of mysticism and kind of actual kind of terror to it. Well, I mean, the actual exorcism themselves, I mean, it's obviously the unpleasant of what she does to herself with the crucifix and whatever. But most of it, once you've seen it, and once you've seen the green soup, and you know it's pea soup ultimately going over, you know, the the, the priest and whatever, it, it doesn't quite have the shock effect, you know. But, mm. Um, mm. But, um, but going back to the sorcerer, I mean, again, the whole idea was also... Now, I didn't think the guys in the original Wages of Fear were that kind of heroic particularly, you know, there's a criminal in that called Joe, who's the one who is the coward, ultimately. Uh, but the idea was that they make them as as unheroic as you could possibly do. So they are all criminals on the run. Um, the terrorist, Palestinian terrorist, is presenting himself, as ironically enough, as an Israeli figure in the, the village. The fraudster has possibly the most poignant sequence of his wife, uh, but then he's still trying to basically get his brother-in-law to 
divvy over the company. Um, and um, then also, of course, the Roy Scheider character, he's kind of, no, he's, you know, he's, he's quite the minor character in the, in, in the actual, you know, the, the, the robbery of the, the, the mafioso church where they rob the, the bingo, isn't it? Because mm. um, it's Gerald Murphy who'd been an advisor and was one of Freakin's somewhat interesting co- criminal consorts as well who has the kind of main bit of that. He's got the leader of the gang. But then, you know, obviously the Scheider character survives the car crash and has to be on the run. So, yeah. So we have these these guys from these disparate areas, and they're arriving in the middle of a sort of fictional South American Latin Latin American country. It's something I never like. It's like the the fictional African country. Just pick a country and do some research. <laughs> yeah, I, no, nobody would do that with Europe. I mean, unless it's the mouse that roared, nobody would say in a fictional European country. Yeah, true, true. I mean, I think originally it was going to be. I can't remember if it was Bolivia or Peru. Um, but they reckon that if they shot it out, their freaking would have been killed. And Wasserman basically said, "You'll be killed, and more importantly, we won't get any insurance on you." So, um, and then of course, this is where Bluthorn came in in terms of the production side because he owned the Dominican Republic. That's where it was predominantly shot. The hate the um, this had been used once before uh, for the Cuban sequences in The Godfather Part Two. Uh, they'd shot in Santo Domingo, in, but and also in freaking uh, not freaking. Um, what's his name? Blue Horner had grand plans to turn Dominican Republic into some sort of Disney World of and uh, was going to have Miss Beauty, Miss World Beauty pageants and God knows whatever there. But it kind of came to a cropper after Sorcerer didn't do very well. But um, so that's where it was shot ultimately. And they John Box actually was the production designer. He was David Lean's production designer, and he and his art crew did an extraordinary job of turning what was really horrible shanty down into an even worse one, apparently. <laughs> yeah, he's he's one of the unsung heroes of the film, which you're singing, actually. You're singing his praises. Yeah, I mean, John Box, um, I mean, was a magnificent production designer, obviously, to Chicago and Lawrence of Arabia, um, and lots of other kind of epic productions as well. So that they, they and again, the also we have to give him his credit for actually coming out of the trucks as well which um, have these extraordinary kind of monstrous kind of look about them as well. I mean, they're, they're not like the truck. I mean, that is the big difference between The Wages of Fear, uh, you know, with the original film. The trucks in the original film are quite glossy and new. And even the nitroglycerin in quite nice stacked kind of, you know, you know things. This, this is like nitroglycerin held in sand every time they move. And also the roads are just appallingly terrible as well, you know. So, um, and also you think the suspension of the trucks and everything like this must be just absolutely atrocious, you know. Because they, they, and again, you have that big, again, freaking putting things together sequence where the four of them, and with the Nazi, of course, then gets killed by Nilo, have pulled the trucks together and they get various bits and they turn and it's done with the Tangerine Dream music. And they, they, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's one of those kind of sequence where obviously he enjoyed himself editing this together and putting it together. You know, you can see that that was the kind of thing that he loved to do in films as well, freaking. So, yeah. And as the film goes on and as we go through the journey and we have the blowing up of the tree and we have the the, the famous bridge sequence, which really should be it should be even more famous because it really should go down as one of the it should be should be neck and neck with the French connections car chasers the most tense it's incredibly tense and also um 
it's uh, one of those things that, um, you know, again, you, you just—it seems to defy all kind of physical logic. I mean, the the truck. I mean, of course, the trucks did fall off in reality, and uh, Freakin claimed that he was in one of them as well. One because this thing took so long to film, and they had to again. This is the whole idea of where the money goes because they they have to create a false storm. They then have to dam the rivers about two miles up so they can actually get enough of a flow going through. So it looks like a tremendous flow is going through because the rivers kept them drying out. And also, again, they had to actually kind of put in kind of pre-CGI, they had to kind of utilise a number of techniques to actually put the rain against the, the windows and things like that. So, again, what appears to be all just shot, it's all made up of incredible component parts to it. And of course, the blowing up of the tree was also. This is where, again, the story is. It's freaking claimed in his, you know, the freaking connection that this is where Charles Bloodhorn shows up in a, in a helicopter and they're filming this. And he's, he's, you know, he's, his guy who's put the dynamite in Marshall for tour. I think his name is who was his special effects guy in The Exorcist. Simply doesn't put enough in and don't blow up the tree. And this is the very point, of course, that. Bluetooth is extolling the virtues of how what a great genius Friedkin is and things like that. And of course, as soon as he sees this, he's straight back in a helicopter with his girlfriend or whatever and his, his underling and straight out there. And then Friedkin has to get this guy who's known as an arsonist, um, who shows up with a variety of beauty products, as he's described, and he, he, he's able to blow up the tree, you know, and that's again. So, and there's lots of problems also in the, 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 the car crash as well. In- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. New Jersey mm. again. They had they couldn't get. They were shot on the East Coast. They couldn't get the stunt people who could do that. So they're going to have to get stunt people in from Los Angeles. Which the then line producer David Selwood said, "I've had enough of this. I can't deal with this any longer." So he gets fired. I mean, he gets rehired on other films by Freakin. So there's there seems to be a long-standing problem with it. But um, but again, it's that situation. I suppose he's now in a situation of omnipotence. He can be the ultimate perfectionist director. You know. Yeah. Uh, and you know, and unlike Coppola, who's spending his own money, he's spending someone else's. So he's clever enough in that respect as well. You know, so. absolutely. And he also has this. You know, he has this relationship with the actors, which is um, kind of uh, extreme to some degree. I mean, I I sometimes think as well, he he sort of tends to use no name actors. Although Roy Scheider was uh, famous at this point for Jaws, but but Jaws is a film that you know. 
Roy Scheider might be famous in it, but everyone went for the shark. No one went to see. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, Scheider, Scheider wasn't his first choice. He wanted he, he wanted Steve McQueen, and I spoke to Nat Segaloff, and I and he said, I said, what would have happened if Steve McQueen had been? He said, well, it would have become a Steve McQueen film rather than ruling freaking one. So, so freaking almost said he regretted because he this again he this whole idea of making the film in the middle of nowhere in the jungle. I mean, McQueen didn't want to do that. I mean, McQueen was now, you know, happy, wealthy, well, not very happy, but a very wealthy man who just didn't want to go and do that. So he said, right, well, can we not make it in California? Freaking goes, no. And then he goes, well, if we do make it, I can't leave the country because I've just been married to Ali McGraw. Uh, who he met on the getaway, the Sam Peckinpah film. And, um, you know, again, he said, can you give her a part or an associate production credit? And Freakin says, that's a bullshit situation. I'm not having it. And then subsequently he says, I realise actually a, fo- a close-up of Steve McQueen would have been much better than miles of, you know, acres of rainforest. But um, he'd made his... But then it wasn't going straight to Shida. I mean, Clint Eastwood apparently was approached, Jack Nicholson, even Robert Mitchum. And Robert Mitchum said, well, I can fall out of a car in front of my drive. Why would I want to do it in the Dominican Republic or whatever? And uh, Robert Blake was another one he was talked about, which Tarantino kind of bigged up in a documentary about Freakin and said they would have been much better. I don't think Robert Blake would have been any good at all, but anyway, that's my take on it. And then Scheider was eventually picked out by Scheinberg. And, they, you know, because, as you say, Jules had just come about, really. And because the thing was also this... He had this, it was the first, I suppose, as you say, he liked Unknown, certainly in The Exorcist and also in French Connection. But he wanted to have this spectacular international cast for this film. So it wouldn't have been just McQueen. It would have been Lino Ventura would have played the fraudster rather than Bruno Kramer. And Marceloni, uh, Marcino Marceloni, well, you know, uh, I've said it wrong, Mastriani would have played the hitman, you know? Uh, always the guy who, who, who Amadou was always going to play the terrorist, but so basically, but then of course Ventura Mastriani. Mastriani had a problem with Catherine Deneuve at the time because he just had a kid by and he had problems like that. But also Ventura said, "I'm not going to be second fiddle to Roy Scheider." So you know, so that was the end of his dream cast, basically. So yeah, I mean, that, uh, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it kind to me it kind of works because oh, yeah, much better, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because yeah. you're not you're not distracted by anybody, and Roy Scheider has that face which is perfect for 1970s cinema. It's just like that broken nose and that you know. Yeah, boxer. no, he also, I mean, also, I mean, obviously, the the character is very specifically modelled on Fred C. Dobbs from The Treasure of Sierra Madre, and mm-hmm. again, he has that ability to wear a hat like Bogart could do as well. So, I mean, Scheider, I think, is very good in it. I mean, I, you know, and he was a very good actor, stroke leading man, but he never quite got his due, did he? He said with Jaws, obviously, but he, he was in other films. Obviously, it was the Bob Fosse film, all that jazz. It's um, but, he, you know, but he, he supposedly was going to be the lead in a deer hunter. I couldn't quite see how that would have worked myself. But, mm. um, mm. um and then he owed Universal another film, which ended up being Jaws 2, which he hated, but obviously made a huge ton of money. So, you know. And he never, and then after that, he seemed to sort of just not exactly disappear, but because he did make a decent John Frankenheim called 52 Pickup. But he never really seemed to have the credit that he should have done, really. And he's one of the few people who worked again with Friedkin as well. But, uh, but in this respect, quite unhappily, because apparently he wanted to play the lead priest in The Exorcist. 
Mm. And Breakin mm. said no, but and he took exception. But Breakin said it wasn't me. We William Peter Blatt, he didn't want you or something like that. But Schneider never quite believed him. I think you know. Yeah, he, I mean, he he's he disappears for so long that it seems like he's really come back when he comes back in the Naked Gun. It's it's like oh, this guy's still around. You know, I mean, and he did a lot of television work. I think he did that sort of Star Trek Under the Sea. Did he? Oh, yes, he did. You're right. Yeah, I mean, he he did. I mean, he made a film called Blue Thunder as well, where John Badham made about a, about a helicopter. You know, pre pre Airwolf. Yeah, and he had it has the usual preening Malcolm McDowell as the kind of sneering British villain in it, who is almost coming so much out of the kind of stock kind of. You know, he's, he's he's obviously camp as well and whatever against Roy Scheider's hero kind of figure, you know. But, um, but I mean, and the whole cast in terms of leads, I think is very good. You know, I mean, Amadou was very good as the terrorist. Um, I mean, the only one I suppose who doesn't get much of a role is the hitman, Francesco Le Brabel, who ironically enough, going back to the French connection, was the one he wanted for Alan Charnier, supposedly, rather than Fernando Ray. Uh, I don't, I, I'm never entirely sure that's an apocryphal tale from Freakins. It's a good story that his he's casting director got the wrong guy from the Boonell films and things like that. But, uh, you know, I, I never quite believe that, you know. Friedkin, who who fires the entire crew of his film, uh, I think would have absolutely no worries about saying, you go back, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my the right guy. Well, maybe, maybe more on French Connection because they were running against a very tight budget. Um, but I mean, I still don't quite believe that he didn't want Gene Hackman and things like that. You know, I think that's a great story. And Gene Hackman was his, his fifth choice or whatever. Um, and of course, also out of French Connection, a number of his other kind of characters, you know, Randy Jurgensen is in Sorcerer as well in a very small role and was one of the kind of technical security advisors on it as well, you know, who, come, who later on will obviously be involved very significantly in cruising as well. There is this legend that we've already we've already nodded to in terms of the Biskindai thesis, which but which also doesn't really work after the nineteen nineties because Scorsese's career just goes from strength. Terence Malick comes back with a thin red line and proves he can make a big studio movie as if I think you're more of a Malick fan than I am, John. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> I thought the thin red line could have had a good hour cut out of it, but anyway, uh, it's a small uh, we we shall utterly dis- disagree on that. But even the even these big failures like cruising uh, has been uh, as you say, yeah I mean I I have a lot of time for cruising I think it's a I think it's a great thriller a really really interesting um, film and as you said to live in uh, to live and die in L A is is now you yourself regard it as a masterpiece yeah um, I mean that's not actually that bad a career no it's not I mean you've got to remember though he. After Solsera, he doesn't go straight into cruising. He makes another film called The Brinks Job with Peter Falk, mm. um, which everybody forgets about. But it's, it's, he actually inherited that. Well, he inherited that from Frankenheimer, ironically enough. After mm. Frankenheimer made that point and made French Connection too. Um, then he makes Cruising, which is, I mean, now it's considered, I think, something of a kind of underground classic i wouldn't say a masterpiece but an underground classic is he has been problems with pacino um he and pacino distinctly hate each other mm. pacino won't do any publicity for it either um and it's a to me cruising is a slightly 
botched narrative though because he suddenly had this idea that the, the, the lever bar killer was about 10 different people by the end of it you know um, but anyway and then he makes this extraordinarily awful comedy called Deal of the Century with Chevy Chase um, which um, he made again for Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin who he must have had some linkage for going back to the, the Minsky the, the night they raided Minsky's film mm. um, and then independently makes um what we've talked about to live and die in LA, which is a very small budgeted film with again complete unknowns at the time. You know, William Peterson and William Freakin, uh, not Freakin, uh, William William Defoe were not well known people. You know, and they uh, William Defoe had had a little bit of a career, been in a couple of sort of minor sort of like biker films and things like that. But mm. I was a New York stage actor in the same way that Peterson had been again a Chicago um, stage actor as well, a Shakespearean actor. Um, and then he makes another film called Rampage, which I remember seeing and thought was actually quite good. But again, it all gets cut and mucked up when distribution issues and Dino De Laurentiis' production company collapsing as well. So, um, and he tried also to make a TV series, which is kind of a strange thing called Cat's Eyes, which I don't know if you've ever heard or seen. Is it like Stephen, um, Stephen King? No, it was meant oh. to be, it was not again it maybe the title didn't help it either because it's meant to be like some sort of um sort of police enforcer agency kind of in but in on an international scale or something like that. Uh right, like an um, Interpol. Bizarrely, bizarrely, yeah, bizarrely enough, it's actually it's actually the music in Cat's Eyes and Rampage are done by Ennio Morricone. Hmm. Which is kind of, I mean and actually if you listen to the Cat's Eyes and I'm maybe it's just me, but I listened to the this and I was thinking that's the music he was using in the untouchables. So aspect why he can plagiarise himself, can't he? So, you know, well, why not, basically? So, but again, this is part of the thing about the book was actually not just thinking, I mean, obviously there's uh, there's looking at the thematics of obviously the, the film. Um, there's also some of this kind of magical realism thing that he kind of sticks in there as well. But it was also to think about, well, what did this show about these people's careers? Uh, and what you've got to give Freakin his due for Unlike Chimino, who went off and kind of disappeared in some sort of Gloria Swanson, you know, kind of di- disappearing into the Hollywood Hills. Um, I know he made a few other films, but you know, um, freaking kept at it. You know, that's what Nat Segaloff said to me, that he could have just, like, he'd had enough money, he could have just thrown in the towel. But he would, even, you know, obviously up to, you know, just before dying, having making, the, you know, this version of the K-Mutiny, you know. He, mm. he, he did keep at it, you know, so... Which is very good, uh, which I saw, it's in, and is excellent. Is it uh, good, is it? Right. Yeah. I'm going to have a look at it, because it's on, um, I think it, you can now stream it, can't you? So, mm, so yeah. It's brilliantly acted. It's a very minimalist. It's very much going back to a sort of film drama, um, the original play. Jason Clarke is... is he's, the, he's the kind of Jose Ferrer character. Isn't exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Kiefer Sutherland is is the Captain Queeg. Queeg, yeah, yeah. The yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really good. Really well well, well done. Well, he did... Know? Well, I mean, it was, that was the other interesting kind of parallel career Freakin' always had. When we were talking about the birthday party, obviously there's boys in the band. He then, obviously, you know, has this extraordinary, people say, come back with the bug film that he made. <laughs> Um, 2005 or six with Michael Shannon and um, I can't remember the actress's uh, name. Ash- um, Ashley Judd. Ashley Judd, that's right. And then he, I thought Killer Joe was good as well. You know, quite sick, but it was it was it was certainly 
I mean, he, he he did try some big action budget ones as well. I mean, he and of course he did a very good version with Jack Lemmon and George C. Scott, Twelve Angry Men, mm. for TV, which has people like, in like he has William Peterson, James Gandolfini, and people like that in it as well. Really, um, you know, um, I mean, he made. Obviously, he made some of these sort of duff ones like Jade, and I never saw Blue Chips was his basket. I know he loved basketball, but it was I never that was Nick Nolte, and it's other one the the Guardian or whatever the the tree taking the child away, um, and then he got some big budget films in the sort of early in, in the early noughties. He got um, uh, Rules of Engagement with Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones, yeah, which, which was really. Wasn't very good. I mean, he made some money. It go freaking again, a bit more financial clout. Then he made. I've never seen it. Tommy Tommy Jones and Benicio del Toro kind of a version, a ram, a kind of version of Rambo. I think um, I can't remember what that one was called. Actually, it was, it's called The Hunted. Um, that's right. Yeah, it's called The is Hunted. That any good? Have you, have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. It's really good. It is. It's basically like an unofficial sequel of The Fugitive because Tommy Lee Jones is very much playing the same sort of character. Okay, we've got a, I want a perimeter of 20, you know, and yeah. And, and he, and they go out and then it becomes a sort of survival combat between these two guys. And um, yeah, no, I, it, I very much rate it. It's a very well, very well done. There's nothing in it that you would particularly go. This is William Friedkin. If I didn't know it, but, but it's a really quality piece of sort of action and adventure filmmaking, which, you know, and he also directed a lot of operas in this period. Oh, that's right. No, you'll you'll come to. I mean, again, I'm, I'm looking really at the film situation, but that's right. He um he became a, a kind of polymath in that respect, you know. Mm. Um, and also, as you say, became an incredible raconteur. I mean, mm. you, know, you can find you can find loads of things in online. And I mean, I'm, I, I say I only saw him. I, I did try and interview him, but I could only. Nat Segaloff, who's very who wrote the biography freak, he was very helpful, and I interviewed him. And also a guy called a, a screenwriter called Josh Olson. And mm. Josh Olson had been very much involved in the kind of resurrection of Sorcerer uh, because um, he'd been part of the program of a kind of freaking series in Los Angeles, uh, again, kind of you know retro cinema. And what they'd done wisely was to show the Exorcist and Sorcerer. But um, I think what they did was they showed Sorcerer first, and, and so the crowd had to stick around to watch The Exorcist. So they said if they'd done The Exorcist, nobody would stick around with Sorcerer. And suddenly all these people were saying, "My God, this is a brilliant film. Why, why has this not been?" And it got it got this. Obviously online as well. It, it got this kind of subsequent, you know, you know, kind of life to it as well. Where lots of people said this is a brilliant film. Why was it treated like this shabbily? Now the easy story is Star Wars, of course. Um, mm. But I think the other story is that you know there was a bit like what happened with Coppola with, when Coppola tried to do the whole zoetrope thing in the early eighties. There was a deliberate, dare I say, pincer movement by the powers that be in Hollywood to put these people in their place as well, which is the other the counter narrative that Biskin doesn't really talk about, you know. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm, yeah. I, I I agree with that. I think there was. Um, I think the Star Wars narrative is a little bit too neat. I think it's. Yeah. Also, there's the irony that, as you say in your book, he was initially making sorcerers his low budget sort of personal <laughs> conversation, <laughs> and his next big budget film was supposed to be a science fiction. That's right. It's going to be a Close Encounters style film about yeah. uh, the the Bermuda Triangle. That was what he was focusing and focus on, and then Spielberg came out, and of course he saw. Close 
close encounters and say, oh, God, <laughs> he's, he's used part of my plot in that, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, but there's also another great irony, of course, when he and Copper and Bogdanovich had his very short-lived director's company, um, which freaking never made a film for, but did enjoy some of the production benefits about the monies that came in from last, not last picture show, the other one, that Paper Moon. Mm. Um, but Coppola brought Lucas along, and Lucas said, I've got this new idea called the, the Star Wars at the time. And both Freakin and Bogdanovich threw it as they said, what's this rubbish? What are they talking about? You know, talking robots and God knows whatever, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and I just didn't get it. You know, and, and that's the other thing with Star Wars. When I was a kid, I saw it. And the first Star Wars was, was like a magical experience. Because, you know, I mean, then it became, you had to write backstories and Darth Vader suddenly becomes Anakin Skywalker and all that sort of stuff. But, um and Lucas also, you know, again, he's forgotten about, he was, again, one of these kind of independent spirits. I mean, he and Coppola set up as other trope in the late 60s. They didn't want to be part of the Hollywood machine, as it were, as well. Yeah, and I mean, I think if you talk, if you listen to, especially some of his more recent interviews, because I think he's become someone who's more comfortable in uh, speaking in public than he used to be, um, there's a brilliant Christopher Nolan interview that he does, uh, when no exactly, when Nolan's interviewing him essentially and he talks about how he he worked star wars out economically that we're not going to have any costume changes and that'll save money and we're not gonna and we you know initially the idea of shooting it in england was about saving money and you know oh yeah i mean no it's exactly i mean i mean i mean lucas i mean i mean lucas was always the there was the story that america coppola was american lucas was japan wasn't it that mm. was always meant to be a coppola would go out, you know, throw himself. He'd the kind of guy throw himself off the cliff and see what happens. And George Lucas go, hold on, here, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, again, Copper and Freakin were big pals. And again, John Milius famously said there became this thing about to become a director in the late seventies. You had to go to somewhere completely remote. You had to basically play with your own sanity and your own health. Um, and this moved away from the old kind of director with the kind of horse whip and the you know the you know the, the megaphone into the kind of the director who throw everything on the line and see how it you know where it went you know and there became obviously a rivalry of I mean I'd include John Borman with that actually because when Borman went off and made Hell in the Pacific they made it in the most remote island they could possibly find you know and also Deliverance as well. So that was the famous story that John Voigt said, you saved my life by casting me, then you spent six weeks trying to kill me, you know. So, mm, mm. Um, and it became that thing that, you know, you, you had to make these things, and like Herzog as well, and you had, to, you know, the idea of putting a boat over a mountain, you know, which I didn't do in reality, but this became part of the directoral vision, you know, which was always being conjured up, you know, so... So I mean, it's a, it, it, you know, it's an interesting time in filmmaking, you know, you can't deny that, you know. Uh, yeah, and it's kind of like one of those things that you, you know it, it's probably nicer to look back on than it was to experience. Oh, dreadful! I mean, the people who had to work with these—I mean, but the interesting thing—I mean, no, I was able to put it in the book, but I went to the, Holly, the library where Freakin's papers are, and I was very much helped by the librarians and also by Nat Sekulov. Um, what you notice is also they cost everything for these mega productions. So mm. even to the tiniest kind of thing, each week there had to be a kind of a, a budgeting report that presumably went back to the studios and whatever. 
And again, you know, the, 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 so the, the costs would escalate and escalate and escalate. There's the big story, but there's all these tiny little things that are put into a big and budgeted film, you know. So, um, which is interesting because it, it just demonstrates how <laughs> bottom line there is also in a situation, you know. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, freaking had these very loyal people. I mean, again, I was reading some of the letters. There was a, his... Um, Barry Bedick, who was his property master, said, you, you're the proper, you're the real deal. And so at this point, he was working on the Dustin Hoffman film, which is a good film about him being the criminal in Los mm. Angeles. Um, it was based on the book, No Beast So Fierce. I can't remember what he was call, called. And, but he said, you know, the director was Ulu Grosberg. He said, this guy's got not a clue. And also Hoffman is just like ruling the roost, basically. Oh, you know? was it? Was it? Because um, Hoffman ended up getting a directorial credit for that, I think. He was going to direct it, then I, he, the last time he, he ducked out. Right. It's got Harry Dean Stanton and Gary Boosie. And yeah, yeah. It's Rogue's wife. I can't remember. Uh, I just can't remember what the Ther- film's called now. Teresa Russell. That's she's in it. Yeah. 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 Is it called something like Short Time or something like that? Uh, it might be. Yeah. It, it's. I think it's something. It's something time, but I don't know. Anyway, it was one of the ones that Tarantino subsequently beefed up as being in one of his straight, influential. Straight things. time. I think there's a thing post Tarantino as well that we love seventies cinema so much that it's almost we're, we're we're willing to we we just want to live in that world where cars are real and. Telephones are heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also. I mean, I agree with you, but I mean, again, in some research, I'm kind of now bigging up the Biskin thesis because Polly Platt, who was Bogdanovich's ex-wife, you know, woman that he left Shibel Shepherd for, mm. um, she also said, you know, these directors went mad. Mm. I mean, you know, Peckinpah was coke fiend and, you know, alcoholic and was blowing the budget on Convoy. It was going out of fashion. uh, Altman was like, again, he was making all sorts of crazy films. He ended up making that, you know, Robin Williams playing Popeye and things like that. Um, And you obviously, I mean, let's not kid ourselves, drugs did, even on the the Sorcerer set, there was, I don't think Freakin was ever part of it, but there were certainly members of the crew who were, largely imbibing as well and certainly it happened on, it's never really talked about an apocalypse now but my god it must have happened out there oh yeah i mean you're kidding charlie sheen uh, martin sheen sorry uh, slip of the tongue martin sheen had a heart uh, an almost fatal heart attack and he was an alcoholic well, he, was an, he, he, he was an alcoholic wasn't he i mean he said on the opening sequence he you know he, they got him completely drunk and then he said he he was he remembered everything however um and he was smoking you know, at that point, about 40 cigarettes a day and things like that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, again, a couple of, I mean, obviously, like freaking, they both did become megalomaniacs, I think. I don't think you can deny that. And they were the kings of their domain, as it were, as well. And this was the whole thing that you went off and made these films in the middle of nowhere. So who's going to oversee you? <laughs> so, uh, because the studio, I mean, this, I said the difference was, was that Coppola was using his own money and it has, it looks like he's going to do it again with Megopolis. Freakin was always clever enough to use someone else's. He, you know, he wasn't going to, I mean, and, um, there was an, again, I found, and it's in the book, there's this, you know, long letter that came from, uh, Jules Stein because, Jules Stein had been his backer at Universal, as I said, over Wasserman and Scheinberg. And Freakin said, hands up, I made a, I've made a cock up here. And Stein writes, writes back, said, that's very good of you to take the blame and whatever. But remember, you lost us an enormous amount of money. 
And um, so, again, there is this situation that we have to be aware of, you know, that they are making commercial enterprises as well as great art house, uh, not exactly art house films, but you know what I mean, but also films that have a greater validity as well beyond just a commercial outcome, you know, so... Mm. But I mean, I mean, I would argue, I would argue that the great films of the seventies, with some exception, are all very much in the popular generic wheelhouse. You know, Exorcist, Godfather, French Connection, Sorcerer. Sorcerer is an adventure in the jungle. It's a no. It's, it's an action action adventure film. I mean, it's um, it is. Um, I mean, as I say, I mean, but there were a lot of other kind of. It was your Monty Hellman kind of character. You know, the Tulane Blacktop, and there was also. Um, a very good film with Gene Hackman and Pacino called Scarecrow. Um, Jerry, I can't remember his, what his name was. Jerry Schatzberg, I think, made as well. So they, they, they were prepared to make uncommercial fare as well. And also the conversation was not, it didn't break any lines at the box office, but then, of course, he went off and made Godfather Part Two. So he was like, so, um, and that was one of the problems that Freaking had, going back to the director's company. He said, you're just... We're going to make esoteric films that no one's going to want to watch, and he wasn't alone there because Frank Yablin. So this was Charlie Bloodhound's idea with Coppola; they conjured it up. Frank Yablin's the other executive, along with Robert Evans, said this is just going to be directors, you know, not being out of control, basically, you know, so and making films that no one wants to see. So. Yeah, but but the, co- the conversation was relatively low budget. I mean, it wasn't like a... a... Uh, it, well, no, it was, it, it was. It was. I mean, that was the whole idea of the director's company. They had to be, I think, at most $2 million. I mean, Bogdanovich said it was a brilliant idea, but then he went off and made Daisy Miller under the director's... And that finished it off, really, you know. Yeah, um, you, have to, you have to do a Blumhouse and you have to stick to it. But, I mean, that that is the, the economic model of Blumhouse. Here's a, here's a couple... Here's a few million... And and keep it below the budget, and you can do what you want, and and it's got to, and it's got to be horror. And well, there's also the UA model as well, of course. I mean, they, I mean, United Artists with Krim and Benjamin and David Picker, that was their thing. If you made a, they give you the budget, and they did give you creative independence for both the producers and the director. I mean, it happened with Midnight Cowboy particularly. Um, so you have a number of those kind of films. Um, I mean, and United Artists was the home of like Woody Allen and the home of a number of other kind of what could be creative directors of the era. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it, again, it's always, it's, it's, there's so many ironies. I mean, I mean, Coppola makes The Godfather because he has to financially. Because, you know, the original Zoetrope, he's blown the deal with Warner Brothers because of THX 1138. Um, and George Lucas basically says, you're going to have to make this. Otherwise, we're going to go bankrupt, you know, because um, Warner Brothers want their, want their pound of flesh, you know. Um, and so, again, there's always, and again, there's people who work with each other. People, it's that whole, you know, it, it, that Hollywood is a relatively small place, isn't it? And so there's always these kind of interlinkages that you, you start seeing, you know, take place amongst people as well. Listen, Mark, I've got one uh, last question for you, which is, uh, as ever, I uh, always ask for a recommended film book. What what book would you like to recommend? Um, well, I've got I've got two because part, come back to the Godfather. I've actually been writing about a thing called the Godfather Doctrine, which is um, is an international relations foreign policy parable based on the plot of the Godfather, the first one, and it tries to relate. Um, the idea of American foreign policy to the breaking down of Pax Corleone 
and having the three sons having different responses. The negotiation with Tom Hagen, the going out neocon idea with Sonny, and then what's called realism, the idea of using hard and soft power by Michael. So, and, I, and it's it's quite a neat little idea. I mean, it falls apart very specifically, but anyway. But and the other one is an interesting book. Again, it's quite pressing in time. It's a book called Hollywood and Israel. Mm. Um, which is written by two academics, Tony Shaw and, and, and Israeli academic Gora Goodman. And again, it looks, it's a very fascinating history because the people who, you, you'd assume it's largely Jewish people who could be Zionists, but no, it's like people like Frank Sinatra, things like that. And um, then it also goes through the kind of relative productions of Exodus, the order Otto Preminger film, which of course was made in Israel, you know, going to clean up casting Paul Newman as the kind of Jewish superhero. Uh, and then also more read up today goes Spielberg with the Munich film as well. So so I, I think they're both, in, in, I know they're academic books, but they're kind of interesting reads. The more popular one I would recommend is Dwight Epstein's Killing Generals about the making of Dirty Dozen, which I did enjoy. I don't know if you've come across it. It's like a sequel to his Lee Marvin. It's a sequel to his Lee Marvin bi- biography, but it is enjoyable. And he's able to interview the director, uh, not the director, because he's dead to Robert Aldrich, but the producer, um, um, Kenneth Hyman, who's still alive, um, who had an interesting, you know, he, he made The Hill with Sean Connery. He made, and he'd done a load of Hammer films as well. And who's afraid of. Of, um, uh, well, no, not who's afraid of the children. The other one, baby, baby, who, what happened to Baby Jane? He was the executive producer on that, right? And then later on, with another Aldridge, and he later on then became the production. Uh, well, they bought. He was part of Seven Arts, and they bought up uh, Warner's from Jack Warner. Um, and it was an interesting period of time because, again, you had Coppola. Uh, Seven Arts, um, who became like their house writer for a period of time. And then he also had Peckinpah making The Wild Bunch. To, um, and Hyman was his big kind of supporter because that was like Peckinpah's comeback film after the debacle of Major Dundee and Cincinnati Kid. But but the, the it's very interesting about Lee Marvin, Robert Ryan, you know, those kind of people and John Cassavetes and that kind of stuff as well. So just recently watched the Ex- Exodus for the first time. It was in September, so it was before everything sort of kicked kicked off recently. Um, and it and it is a weird film because no, I, I just mean it, it. Kind of is justifying Israeli terrorism, the blowing up of the King David Hotel, in a way which is kind of like. I, I just wonder what British audiences would have made of it. Well, as a, it's that's part of the compromises. I mean, again, reading this book, this was what. The original book by Leon Uris was a complete, you know, Zionist propaganda book, apparently. Um, I've never read it. Um, but when they came to make the film, this was Otto Preminger had an, he, A, he fell out of years, he fell out of everybody. Um, and he got Dalton Trumbo to write it, who of right. was, was back, you know, it's a part of the Hollywood 10 and was better known for, you know, being involved with Spartacus at the time. And subsequent histories have always ignored the fact that Exodus, I think, came out before Spartacus. I can't fully remember. But anyway, um, and the whole thing was that they had to do loads of compromises, as you say, because British, I don't know how British audiences did take it, because they were, it was very mindful. There was a big market in Britain for, 
you know, big blockbuster films. And, you know, the Brits are the baddies in certainly, I mean, certainly the Cyprus sequences, and presumably the Ergun are the good guys, you know, although they, the main character's meant to be part of the Hazamak, aren't they? Um, and again, in the light of where we are now, this is what tends to be forgotten in these histories. You know, again, it's a bit like the Munich film about what does violence beget violence and also who are the terrorists? You know, this is the, you know, and that's what Spielberg got slagged off for with his Tony Kushner as well by you got a hardline Zionist as well, particularly in America. So when he made that film. Um, but it's again very interesting because there was actual direct state involvement in the making of the book and the film. And, yeah. you know, because it, was a, it, it wasn't just a good kind of propaganda thing. We have to bear in mind, actually, it brought in a lot of money, not just in terms of box office, but actually having a huge American production in Israel was, and lots of Israeli people, technicians, all these kind of people worked on it as well. So, because, uh, again, I think they were kind of quota right rules and things like that, you know, so... Um, Preminger ever liked him. He was not a likable man. I mean, he was talking about, he, we were talking about the kind of stereotypical 70s directors like Freakin and, you know, um, Coppola doing him going off to the middle of the jungle. Also, Preminger, like Eric von Stroheim, is like your quintessential kind of autocratic director of that classic Hollywood era, isn't it? Oh, he was a guy with a whip. Yeah, oh no, yeah. he was a, and he, I mean, and of course he played the, the Nazi commandant in um, the Billy Wilder film, didn't he? It's Stalag 17 as well. Well, listen, Mark, thanks so much for for uh, for the conversation and thanks so much for the book. Sorcerer is a, it's a great read. And I think if people have seen the film, it would be a great compliment to that. And if they haven't, it'd be a great stimulant to, to going and watching it. Well, thanks very much, John, for inviting me. So thank you very much. Yeah. So that was my conversation with Mark. I really enjoyed getting in-depth about the craziness of that shoot and the career of William Friedkin and why to look at the career um, of, of one of cinema's great geniuses, I guess. Uh, certainly a rocky career, but one which created masterpieces. There's no doubt about it. And there are some filmmakers who uh, have much larger filmographies, much more commercially successful films who never make a masterpiece. And uh, Friedkin arguably made at least three, I think was our final count, but there's arguments that go a little higher, arguments that go a little lower. Um, that'd be interesting interesting to, to hear your opinions if you want to get in touch. By the way, you can get in touch with the podcast by just uh, um, uh uh, DMing me on Twitter at Dr. Jonti um, or leaving comments and I'll read them uh, and, and I can put them in, in this post post conversation uh, segment. Uh, this week I've had uh, an interesting sort of watch of films, mostly old films, nothing particularly new. Uh, I, first one was John Cassavetes' Gloria which is from 1980 and stars Gina Rowling, Rowlands, his wife, as a um, a functionary of the mafia, a, a hit woman, who um, throws in her lot with a, a young boy of a neighbour uh, who basically everyone is seeking uh, to kill. And she decides to protect, thus putting her whole life and and way of living in jeopardy. It's an amazing film. I don't know how this has, has gone under the radar for me because I'm a huge fan of John Cassavetes. 
And this in many ways brings together Casavetti's philosophy of filmmaking with a much more commercial and accessible genre approach. And it's just, um, it's fascinating. It's, it's amazing. And Gina Rowland has a, a wonderful performance, is uh, marvellous. It's just totally uh, a character that you, you, she disappears into. You know, there's everything about her, uh, her behaviour and her actions, her gestures, the way she speaks, the way she spits out the lines, just something you've never seen before just an absolutely unique character and well worth your time if you haven't seen it uh i thoroughly recommend it it's gone gone as gone down as one of my favorites of this year um favorite discoveries of this year uh, i've also been having a bit of a, a studio ghibli moment uh, i watched whisper of the heart from up on poppy hill porco rosso uh, nausica of the valley of the wind uh, all of which I found amazing. I think Poco Rosso and Nausicaa are uh, probably my favourite, the Miyazaki films, of course. It's difficult to beat Miyazaki. I rewatched Jackie Brown, having read uh, a lot of Elmore Leonard. I haven't yet read Rum Punch, which is the novel which Jackie Brown is based on. Um, this is a, a film that always feels like the hipster's Tarantino, the one that, that uh, allows them to like Tarantino without being too obvious or dumb or film broy. Uh, far be it from me to, you know, suggest the other what, what reasons for people to like a film other than they just simply like it. But it is an odd film. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't say I wholeheartedly love it. It's got some great bits in it, it but it feels like it's a film that is, is, is overly restrained. Um, it feels it actually feels much more like a TV episode. It, look, it feels like this is this is Tarantino doing a TV movie. You know, it's restrained in terms of its uh, locations, in terms of its um, the way it's going about its storylines. I mean, it feels like an episode of Columbo or something like that. You know, it, it, it's it's a good episode of Columbo. It's a good episode of uh, it's a good version of um, Elmore Leonard. But I don't think it's as good as Steven Soderbergh's Out of Sight, for instance. Um, I'm not even sure it captures Elmore Leonard in quite the same way that Get Shorty, the Baron Sonnenfeld film, does. Um, it is, of course, bolstered by four, five, five amazing performances. I'm going to leave Michael Keaton out of that. I don't think he's particularly good or, or he's particularly a major character. Um he just doesn't seem to have much to do as the FBI agent. Whereas Robert De Niro, Sam, Samuel L. Jackson, Bridget Fonda, um, Pam Greer and Robert Foster, in uh, uh, probably in reverse order, are, um, are really doing something interesting and they're really eating up screen. Samuel L. Jackson sort of, on rewatch, feels like he's a more dominant presence than any, any character, actually, any actor uh, in the film. And he seems to be the one who's having the most fun, uh, whereas everybody else just seems to be sort of underplaying it. I did like Robert De Niro in this as well. I thought De Niro has, um, again, he felt on first viewing like I was watching Michael Keaton, um, that he was just happy to be in a Tarantino film, which is a crazy thing to say because De Niro here is at the height of his career and he's, you know, he, he's able to play anything. Um, 
But it, on on rewatching the context of this not being the latest Quentin Tarantino, but one that's well back, back, back in his back catalogue, um, yeah, I, I feels like a B side to me. Feels like a B side, but a really good B side, and I can understand why loads of people discover this and say this is all oh, their favourite Tarantino and all the rest of it to impress the kids, or not. Uh, another film that I watched, uh, which is relatively new, is Passages, um, the Ira Sachs film uh, from this year. So this was the most recent film. Uh, and it stars uh, Franz Rogowski, Ben Whishaw and Adele Exarchopoulos as a love triangle, a menage a trois, even though it's set in France, most of the language in the film is uh, English. There's a bit of French in there, but it's mostly English. And... Um, yeah, I mean, Franz uh, Rogowski is a selfish and uh, petulant uh, film director who is in a relationship with Ben Whishaw and then has an affair with um, Adele Exacopoulos. And, uh, and they're basically, <laughs> in his wish to have everything, kind of ruins everybody's lives, including his own. Um it's a melodrama, but it's a well-made melodrama. It's slick, it's well done, and the quality of the performances lift it way above um, perhaps where it deserves to be. Uh, so it, it makes for a great film. I don't know if it quite scales the heights um, that its ambition seems to to require, but but it's a really it's it's really well worth a watch if you haven't seen it. It's 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 superior entertainment, let's say. Um, okay, those are the films I've been watching recently. Uh, next week, uh, I don't know what we have, so um, there might be a brief hiatus. Uh, I'll be away in Tallinn, so I might well be doing a report live from Estonia. Uh, and if I do, then that will be the next episode. Okay, until then, take care.